Progressive Rugby League. Regular listeners of our pod over the last couple of years will know all about our Progmom segment, which celebrates the best our game has to offer, be it on the field or off it. And you wouldn't have needed an eagle ear to notice that segment punctuated with regular references to both the Learning Disability Rugby League and the Physical Disability Rugby League in the UK. Well, on today's show, we're focusing on the latter. Take His Legs is a documentary that follows the inaugural season of Super League's Physical Disability Rugby League competition from the perspective of a charming bunch of lads from the Warrington Wolves as they take an ambitious tilt at international rugby league glory. From the storied rugby league towns of the industrial north of England to the game's Sydney hothouse, these guys are in for an adventure of a lifetime. Now reflecting the best of rugby league inclusion, the Wolves squad is assembled from a wide variety of shapes, sizes, ages, personalities and experiences, and even has room for a rugby league-loving, hemisphere-hopping comedian and TV host who, as luck would have it, has kindly agreed to join our show today. Adam Hills, the warmest of welcomes to the Progressive Rugby League podcast, and congratulations on a super film. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the show. Now, I should say, UK listeners are probably quite familiar with the film, which premiered in December, but in fabulous news for Australian listeners, and one of the reasons why we have you on today, Take His Legs is now available to view here in Australia on Tent Play, and we highly recommend you doing that. Now, Adam, we'll get to the film shortly, but first of all, can you give our listeners a sense of your relationship with rugby league over your lifetime? Lifelong arm-in-arm companions, hot and cold roller coaster, periods of mutual complacency, paint us a picture. I mean, I think all of the above. So when I was three days old, my dad brought a red and green toy rabbit into the hospital as my first ever gift. So <laughs> I had no choice but to be a South Sydney Rabbitohs fan. My dad grew up in Maroubra. My granddad grew up in the Rocks. My granddad worked at Holden's, and according to him, he worked alongside John Sattler ah. uh, when he first came to Sydney from the country. So, I mean, you know, my blood runs red and green. Even though I grew up in the, <laughs> the Shire of Sydney, I grew up in the Sutherland ah. Shire. So everyone I went to school with supported the Sharks, but I was a Rabbitohs supporter. There you go. Um, and I think that's probably why, you know, I, I love the Rabbitohs so much is because I, I had to stick to my guns because <laughs> by being a Rabbitohs fan... You know, I could have given in and just gone with the mob, but I didn't. So, you know, I grew up following rugby league. I was too young to remember the 1971 premiership Mm -hmm. because I was born in 1970. I played rugby league any chance I got. I played touch football at primary school. I played rugby league for the first two or three years of high school. Mm -hmm. But then it kind of became apparent that having a prosthetic leg was holding me back from keeping up with the other kids. So sure. probably about the age of 12 or 13, that's when I stopped playing. Okay. Did you have favourite players as a kid? Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, as a Rabbitohs supporter, I mean, I remember going to see a game at the Cronulla home ground, which mm. at that point I think was Endeavour Field, mm-hmm. and trying to sit on my dad's shoulder so I could see Eric Sims play. Right. But then as I got a bit older, I think for me, the hardest combination of Neil Baker and Craig Coleman were always... Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing to watch. Neil Baker was one of my favourite players. Phil Blake when he joined the oh, Rabbitohs around Phil that Blake. time. Ian Roberts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a real gun period for the Rabbitohs there about, what, 86, 87, 88, 89, mm. around that era. 
So that's probably, you know, those are my favourite childhood memories, going to see the Rabbitohs. I think play the Bulldogs in one of the semi-finals in about 88, 89. So Pete Rabbitohs, you know, like I said, uh, Mark Ellison, who, you know, I've met since. So yeah, the Smith's Crisps jersey is pretty much sums up my Rabbitohs <laughs> time. It is one of the best. And Phil Black, one of our favourite players here on the podcast, a chip and chase expert. Now, let's get to the film. It's a brilliantly warm, engaging and funny film. And as I said in the intro, it follows the formation of the Wolves PDRL team and its ensuing adventures. How did you, as a London-based Australian, find yourself involved in such an operation hundreds of kilometres from where you live? It came about because of a tweet. So I just got one tweet that said, did you know the South Sydney Rabbitohs PDRL team won last weekend? And I didn't even know what PDRL was. So I looked it up. And it turns out PDRL stood for Physical Disability Rugby League. And then I, I went on the Facebook page and I saw that there were, at that point, five teams in Sydney. Sea Eagles, the Rabbitohs, the Roosters, the Tigers and the Newtown Jets. And I think there's now the Parramatta Eels. Mm. And it wasn't long after that that I was back in Australia. So I called them up. I called up a guy called George Tonner, who was kind of at that point in charge of it all, and said, look, I've just read about you guys. I really want to do what I can to support and maybe sneak along and strap the boots on and, and have a bit of a run mm. what do you reckon and he went well that's really hard when you live in London <laughs> <laughs> he said but look he said we've just been contacted by the Warrington Wolves who want to start up England's first ever disability team maybe you should contact them right. and look I'm not you know I'm not one for jumping into every opportunity that pops up regardless of what it is it has to be something that I really 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 want to do mm. And I think deep down, straight away I knew that there was going to be a documentary in this okay. following the formation of England's first ever physical disability rugby league team. Mm. So I called up a guy who used to direct The Last Leg, who was a massive rugby league fan. He's from St. Helens originally, so he supports mm. St. Helens. And I went, look, I think there's a story here. And he, he said, yeah, I, lo- I like this. As soon as you get back to London, let's talk and we'll just follow you everywhere with a camera. Wonderful. So I got back to London, contacted the Wolves and said, look, I really want to support. What can I do? And they said, well, there's one week left in the season, one home game left in the season. Why don't you come down to the captain's run? I think it was maybe a Thursday morning. Mm. We'll get some publicity. We'll get some press down there and we'll get a whole bunch of people with disabilities to come along and just play against the first grade team. And I mean, once I ran out on the Halliwell Jones Stadium in full kit playing against the first grade Warrington Wolves team, that was it. I was, <laughs> it was like, I can see myself throwing a lot into this. Wonderful. Now, what is the town of Warrington like? Now, through doing this podcast, we're learning more and more about the rugby league towns of the north. And we're learning that while mm. we in Australia and some in London tend to paint the rugby league towns of the north of England with the same brush, they each have their own identity. What have you learnt about Warrington? I mean, I remember as a kid, and it was Neil Baker. I remember in the off-season one year, Neil Baker went over and I think played for Salford. Mm. And I had never heard of, of Salford. And a lot of the places, the really interesting thing for me is that rugby league in England is confined to the north, and in particular the northwest. Mm-hmm. So you've got places like Widnes, Wakefield, Warrington, St Helens, Leeds, Wigan, mm-hmm. Castleford, places that, you know, don't, enter into the conversation on a daily basis in England, to the point where I went up to St Helens a few years back to watch the Rabbitohs play the World Club Challenge against St Helens. Mm. I got on the train in London and I thought, you know what, I'm going to buy myself, get into the mood like I used to in Sydney. I used to buy a big league on the way to the game. (laughs) I thought, I'll buy myself a rugby league magazine at Euston Station in London. I I couldn't find one. There was just no rugby league magazines. And it is such an obscure sport over there. I did an interview... 
at half time during the Four Nations a few years back in London. Mm. And the BBC interviewer said to me, do you reckon you could do for rugby league what you've done for disability sport? Yeah. And I thought, my God, that's a sad sign when it goes disability sport and then lower than that is rugby <laughs> league. Like, that's how low the profile is. Yeah. So the northern working class towns of England, I mean, the, the best way to describe it, if you think places like, I guess, Wollongong, like Newcastle, okay. you know, working class, not flashy in the way that even like Manchester might be. Mm. So Warrington is halfway between Liverpool and Manchester, and it's got a little bit of both about it. It's got a little bit of scouse attitude. It's got a little bit of kind of Manchester music cred. Mm. But the best way to describe it, and this is really unusual for England, it is a rugby league town. So the main roundabout in town has a pair of rugby league goalposts, and I think <laughs> they were possibly from the first ever rugby right. league field that was set up in Warrington in, yeah. what, 1895, I think it was. Mm. They bleed blue and gold, uh, primrose and blue, they call it. Mm-hmm. They don't really have a soccer team, which most places in England do. Everything revolves around rugby league. Okay. But not only that, the foundation from the Wolves Club puts so much back into the community. It's fascinating. Mm. In a way that I know the foundations here do, but they had a disability soccer team. They have dance classes for the elderly. They have a dementia-friendly cafe. Oh, right. They have mental health programs going throughout the community. You know, what Warrington puts into the club when they turn up every week to watch them play, the club then puts back out into the community through all these amazing social outreach programs. So it's an amazing example of how rugby league is such a family and community sport in England Mm. in a way that I don't think it is in Australia. Right, okay. That's great to hear. Now, as you alluded to previously, Adam, once you got involved, you really caught the rugby league bug which meant you thought nothing of the 400-mile round trip to training each week from <laughs> London to Warrington. But what did your family think? Well, look, the way I... I think eventually my wife in particular saw how much I was getting out of it, how much happier I was as a person <laughs> to have this weekly release. So, <laughs> I mean, look, the way I figure it is, some people are gym junkies. You know, I'm not a real gym junkie. I don't like exercising just for the sake of exercising. Yeah. I'll run after a football or tennis ball you know I like playing sport I like competing so I figured look I could have a Tuesday night where is my night to go to the gym I could spend money on a gym membership duck out of the house for a couple of hours and get it out of my system that way Mm. or I could hop on a train I could have what ends up being two hours of peace and quiet where I can actually get work done on the train hop off in Warrington within half an hour I'm at the training ground and I'm not I'm not the guy off the telly. I'm not a comedian. I'm just another bloke who plays rugby league. Yeah. But aside from that, so the first thing I do, I get off the train and I walk to the stadium, which is about a 15-minute walk, because that's where the foundation is. I just walk, everyone knows me at the stadium now. And as a, as a guy who grew up playing rugby league, to walk into a Super League stadium <laughs> and have everyone go, oh, g'day, Adam, yeah, sure, go through. And sometimes some of the players there, Steve Price, the coach, is often wandering around. He'll stop for a chat. Yeah. Jason Clark, who plays for the Wolves now, who used to play for the Rabbitohs. Bryson Goodwin was there last year. Blake Austin's there now. Gareth Widdop. Yeah. I've, I've got to know all these guys. <laughs> I can just chat to them as I walk into the stadium. And I am like an absolute kid in a candy store. <laughs> and I have to stop myself from giggling when like someone like Chris Hill wanders over, who's the captain of the Wolves. And he'll go, oh, hey, Adam, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, it's really cool. <laughs> 
love that story. And I, I do love your wife makes a very brief appearance in the film, but she does deliver the killer line of the film where she says something like, yeah, it's definitely a midlife crisis, but better than buying a Porsche or having an affair, which I thought was a killer line by your wife there. <laughs> Seeing that I've suffered a fractured ankle, torn ligaments and a concussion, I'm not sure whether an affair would have given me more or less injuries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, Adam, can you take us on the train with you on a, a training Tuesday or Thursday? 200 miles each way would seem like a bit of a chore yeah. to most of us, especially doing it repeatedly, but it sounds like it wasn't for you. I'm curious to know what you were feeling both on the way there and on the way home. So I'd love you to give us a sense of what doing this meant to you. So when I first started going there, I remember getting on the train going, what am I doing? I know nothing about Warrington. I haven't been around rugby league for 30-odd years. Mm. I don't know any of these people. I'm really out of place here, but I'm going to give it a crack. I'm going to see what I can do. Yeah. And then once I got into it, so here's how my Tuesday works. Mm. The TV show that I host in, in London is called The Last Leg. Mm-hmm. So I meet up with the producers at about 10.30 on a Tuesday and for about two or three hours we just sit down, we bounce around some ideas and we start putting together a vague skeleton for the show. Mm. Normally, I'm on a 2.30 train from Euston Station up to Warrington and the moment, honestly, the moment that train pulls out of the station, my whole body relaxes. Yeah. Partly because I know I've got an hour 45 of just nothing ahead of me where I can just stare out the window and get some work done. But also because I know I'm on my way to training. And about halfway there, I'll pull out my phone and I'll play my fire-up music. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I've got a whole bunch of... Anything we know? Yeah, there's a bit of... I mean, it varies, but as far as Australian music goes, I mean, there's, there's a bit of ACDC Highway to Hell. That yeah. has to be in there. Beautiful. My favourite is Titanium by Sia, partly because oh. it's a really good fire-up song, but yeah. also, also because my prosthetic blade is made out of titanium. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so then I take the train up. Like I said, I get off at Warrington Station. I walk about 15 minutes to the stadium. I hop up to the foundation and chat with the guys there. Our coach is there. Mm-hmm. We have a bit of a natter about the week, a bit of a catch-up, and then... We'll head over to training. Now, we train at the University of Chester campus in Warrington. There's a big indoor training barn. We usually train from about 6 till maybe 8 o'clock, at which point often the under-18s will come in and train. And like I said, sometimes some of the players, like Jason Clark's been down to watch us. Mm. Sitter Akeola's come down. In fact, the the night that I fractured my ankle was the one night Jason Clark had popped in, and there is such a weird sensation. (laughs) To be sitting there with a fractured ankle yeah. while one of your favourite Rabbitohs players bandages it up and ices it for you. <laughs> On the other side of the world, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's nuts. And so then we trained for two hours. And look, when I started playing physical disability rugby league, I didn't think it was going to be easy, but I mm. thought it won't be too physical. But my goodness, like, aside from the hits we take in the game, our coach has really pushed it. There have been a couple of training sessions where a few of us, me included, have vomited afterwards. Wow. Like, proper strength and conditioning training before we came out to play in australia we had the conditioning coach of the first grade team come down and talk us through some proper conditioning tips yeah so i mean i would say i'm probably fitter now than i've ever been in my life but yeah we work really hard on strength and conditioning and in, in lovely northern fashion <laughs> you know i'll say to the coach all right coach what are we up for tonight and he'll go ah oh, bit of con bit of whack <laughs> Con and whack? So we need to work out what that meant. That means a bit of conditioning and a lot of tackling. Oh, right, fair enough. I was going to ask you, Adam, if the physicality surprised you because I imagine you and most others hadn't honed your body for the rigours of an armourless collision sport. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, clearly the hits when you're a 12, 13-year-old aren't as big as the hits in your 30s and 40s, which yeah. is the age that most of the people were playing. I'm nearly 50 now. Mm. The first game, it wasn't until the first game against Lee where I think I had a bit of a target on my back anyway because the only thing English people like hitting harder than an Australian is an Australian off the telly. <laughs> so that first game, I copped some proper hits and I hurt like I've not hurt before to the point where I really afterwards thought, I don't know that I can do this. Oh, wow. on a regular basis and gradually I got used to it and in fact recently probably in the last six months I've found myself in a position where I'm really enjoying making hard tackles like I've always oh, been right. a pretty good tackler I've got you know I'd like to think I'm pretty fearless I'll throw myself into anything on a footy field mm. but I'm now you know I now feel really comfortable in fact I quite look forward to having a session where there's a bit of whack <laughs> and, and again you know I don't think people realise until they watch PDRL how serious it is. We played at Anfield Stadium, which is Liverpool's home mm. ground, last year for Magic Weekend, or the year before, actually. And the amount of people who tweeted afterwards going, oh, my God, I had no idea how hard that sport was going to be. Yeah, I can attest to that because I saw you guys play at Redfern Oval when you were out here. And oh, that was, were you there? I was Amazing. there. And, believe it or not, I have a photo of you crossing over in the corner which maybe, I don't know, you only try at Redfern Oval, but I have that photo of you, so I can send it to you later on. But photo of you scoring Amazing. a try. Would you know what? One of the guys, one of our able-bodied players, because every team has two able-bodied players, mm-hmm. one of ours is a guy called Sean Briscoe, who represented yeah. England. Mm. And, I mean, to train alongside him and to play alongside him is the best education I've ever had in rugby league. You know, that instinctive knowledge that you get when you've represented not only your club at the highest level, but your country. Yeah. He can create a gap. It's like watching a magician at work. Yeah. But he, I've watched the footage back of that try that I scored at Redford, and as he offloads to me, he's got a grin on his face. <laughs> and he said to me afterwards that his highlight of our whole Australian trip was putting me over to score at Redford. Oh, right. There you go. Well, I've got the moment <laughs> where you put the ball down in that left-hand corner, so it was a very good try, may I say. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I'm also interested in what it felt like the first time you got into the clear on the field, the first time you burst through the line and were running at full tilt. Because as adults, while we might do plenty of exercise, it's rare that you're running at full tilt in the open air. And that's a unique and thrilling feeling. What was that feeling like for you? Okay, so the first time I found that happening at training. So, you know, we trained for a good few weeks before that first game. Yeah. And I found myself able to find a gap. I kind of gravitated towards the wing for no other reason than, I don't know, I guess I was just quick. Yeah. And I found myself able to find a gap or at least create a, you know, a way down the wing. And I was pretty happy with myself. But that was indoors. And I think the real hit came when that first game we played against Leeds, we played outdoors. Yeah. And suddenly that's a lot harder on the legs to try and get up to speed Mm -hmm. to properly sprint Mm. on slightly sludgy outdoor northern English grass. Yeah. So to be honest, it was a good few games before I, I found myself at full tilt. Yeah, right. Sprinting outside. I think the loveliest feeling for me is hitting a gap. Yeah. Hitting a a point where I just found there's one guy in particular where if he took it up to the line and I ran off his left shoulder, he just offloaded a nice little flat, sharp ball to me and I could cut through a gap. My goodness, that feels good. That feels better than running at full speed, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Running at full speed is great and it is like a, wow, I've not done this for ages. (laughs) 
But when you just pull off a move that puts you through a gap perfectly, it's such a satisfying feeling. Yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. Funnily enough, you say that, sorry, adding to that, so our coach, because, you know, we're all on the WhatsApp group together, and I was messaging our coach last night. He sent me his favourite try from, I think, maybe the Challenge Cup semi-final last year from Warrington. Okay. And, you know, Steve Price jumping up and down on the sideline, and it was just... I wrote back to him going, it was one of those beautiful set plays where it was like the second receiver then kind of had a decoy runner through to a guy out the back who then dummied to someone coming inside and then had a decoy and then threw a cutout part. And it was clearly a set move, but it was so many bits all working together. Yeah. And our coach was going, man, when something like that comes off, it just feels amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you watch it every week on the TV, but yeah, we don't, as viewers, don't really understand the feeling. So that's a a great insight. So thanks for that, Adam. Now, from the film, it seems like there's a really great team environment and bond within the group. How did the rest of the squad initially take to having a TV personality with a a few TV cameras trailing behind being part of the team? In all honesty, I think there was a criticism from our coach because I guess that the cameras were there a lot and I guess the lads all got used to it. Mm. But the problem was when the cameras stopped following us around. Right. <laughs> because I think, you know, everyone tried a little bit harder, put in a bit more effort when the cameras were on. <laughs> right. When the cameras stopped, when we stopped filming the documentary, that's when I remember coach one week going, lads, you guys really don't put in any effort when the cameras aren't here. <laughs> Pretend the cameras are on. Um, yeah, turn it back on, bring it back. <laughs> And there was, you know, there was a bit of a worry that the doco might go to the boys' heads, that they might get used to all the, you know, the attention of, of having a camera crew following them around. But what was lovely was, you know, that initial feeling that I had of, I don't belong here in rugby league circles, I don't belong in the north of England. Mm. Gradually, I felt more like a team player and I felt more confident in stepping up on the pitch mm-hmm. and kind of saying a few more words. And there's been a really fascinating mental journey for me. So... As a comedian, you're the loser. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. it's not funny to win something. It's way funnier to lose something <laughs> yeah. or to get something wrong. Yeah. And I struggled with that when I was playing rugby league because I was like, no, this isn't all about winning. <laughs> I've got to put my comedy persona aside. And I'm, I've convinced myself that I'm a massive stuff-up. But whatever I try and do, I will get wrong. Right. And there was one game last year where even after we'd won the World Club Challenge, you know, once we'd come out to Australia and won that game, we were world champions for all intents and purposes. Yeah. But I still didn't feel like I'm a winner deep down. And we played a game last year in Wakefield. We played against Leeds. Mm-hmm. It was six all. I didn't realise this, but there were basically 30 seconds left on the clock and I took an intercept and scored. Oh, beautiful. Put it down in the corner. We didn't convert. We won the game. You know, that was the last play of the game. Mm. And... To walk off the pitch and have all your team come round and pat you on the back and then coach come over and said, mate, that's the only thing that made me smile all day. Yeah. I suddenly had this feeling of, oh my goodness, I didn't stuff it up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do the comedy thing. Of, I didn't drop it. I didn't ruin it. I actually won the game for <laughs> it. And it honestly completely changed my opinion of myself. Yeah, but right, that's me. interesting. And, and the whole time it was happening, all I could think was, ah, don't ruin it, don't ruin it, don't ruin it, <laughs> as I was running, as I took the intercept. And then at the next game we played, coach said, look, our captain injured himself on a night out. That's not even more playing. And coach said, look, Hilsey, I need you to step up, I need you to be captain this week. Oh. And I, deep down, went, oh, I can't be captain, I'm the idiot. I'm the comedic idiot, I'm the jester. You don't put yes. the jester in charge of the court. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And I kind of said to him, look, 
I'm not sure about this. I don't know that I can be the leader of this team. And he went, mate, you're already a leader on the field. Yeah. He said, you're already, you know, a senior player. You're already a leader. You, you don't have to step up that much in order to be captain. And so the next game we played was in Warrington, a home crowd, and I captained the team. And nice. we won both games that day. And I kind of walked away again going, oh, my God, okay. <laughs> I belong here. I feel like I belong here now. I'm a team leader. I'm a rugby league player. I'm not a loser. It's a fascinating journey. I suppose the other side of it, Adam, is that as a rugby league player, you've got to be pretty brave. But also as a comedian and performer, you have to be brave as well in a different way. But it's a a very brave thing to do that not many people in the world have the guts to step up on a stage and and sort of spill their guts. So I suppose in in a certain way that it it makes sense that you're able to sort of step up and give this rugby league thing a go because you're you're used to sort of having a crack at, at things that many people wouldn't. In a way, this is just like an extended improv. Yeah. You know, I love to go out on stage and ad-lib with an audience and just let, yeah, let's throw yourself in and let's see where we end up. Yeah. You know, if you ever do improv comedy, the, the cheesy old rule of improv is say yes and then say and. <laughs> so whatever someone says to you, just accept it and then see where else you can take it. So in yeah. a way, that's kind of what I was doing with this. But yeah. along the way, I had to become a proper rugby league player. Mm. And we ended up winning, you know, we'd won the World Club Challenge against the Rabbitohs, but then last year we had the first ever... UK PDRL league yeah. proper league we played all the other teams we got absolutely slammed in our first game of the year yeah. we won everything after that and you know we played the grand final I co-captained the team that day it was 12 degrees it was bucketing with rain <laughs> it was a howling gale yeah. and stupidly the way we play it, we play 25 minutes straight through mm-hmm. in the UK and uh, I won the toss but didn't think to run with the wind <laughs> <laughs> so we were running into a howling gale and rain hitting us straight in the face. And what was it? With about seven minutes to go, our player coach was sent off for descent. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I had to step up. The referees called me over. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm in the north of England. It's 12 degrees. It's bucketing with rain. I'm covered in mud. I'm 49 years old. <laughs> And I'm talking to some northern referee as the captain of a rugby league team because one of our players has just been sent off. And now we've got to hunker down for another seven minutes and hold out the opposition, which we managed to do. Yeah. And I just thought, my God, what a, you know, I, I now feel like a rugby league player because of all that. It yeah. was, honestly, winning that trophy that day and standing there with the lads, one of the most satisfying things I've ever done in my life. Oh, fabulous. As an, a quick aside, Adam, there is a moment in the film where you say, when I play, I don't have to be a certain person. Is it awkward when yeah. you, as a, a TV personality, insert yourself into certain situations like this? Do you feel you have to switch on and make sure you're you're living up to the person people think you are, even though, of course, you are that very person? Uh, in a weird way. There was another moment, weirdly, there was a moment that didn't make it into the documentary that was in the original cut, and it's an interview with one of the other players, and he said, it's really funny, he said, when I turn on the television, I see Adam Hills, the TV host. Mm. He said, but when I'm playing rugby or when I'm on the WhatsApp chat, it's just Adam, my mate. Yeah. And I really took that as a compliment because I don't... Yeah, I guess at first I didn't want them to see me as... I did, like, at no point did I want to be the star of the team. And I kind of said to the coach early on, don't pick me if I don't deserve to be there. Yeah. Like, if I'm not up to scratch, I don't want to be holding this team back because I'm the guy off the telly. I'll still make this documentary regardless. And in fact, there was, a, <laughs> there was a point in the grand final, there was a point where I kind of didn't help out in a tackle right on our line and had let in a try. The coach bollocked me for it. <laughs> 
and I was really glad that he did because he hadn't given me much of a bollocking up until then, and yeah. I wondered if he was going easy because I was the guy off the telly. Yeah. And I said to him afterwards, thank you so much for that because it meant that every other compliment you paid me was real. Yeah. And certainly, like I said, if anything, being the guy off the telly meant that the opposition hit me harder. Yeah. So it probably worked against me for, for some of those early games. Yeah. Now, Adam, let's talk about some of your teammates, each of whom has a fascinating story of their own to tell. Can you tell me about Tony, the, the team's resident speedster? I mentioned before that I saw you guys play at Redfern Oval against South Sydney. Oh, yeah. And when I saw him run, I mean, I was in awe of his pace, and I, I know everyone else was too. Give us a sense of his story. We've been training for, I guess, a few months. We played our first ever game. This guy turned up one night, very shy, very quiet. He was missing most of the fingers, in fact, all of the fingers on his left hand. Mm. And he said, oh, I've come up from Devon. I don't even think we knew he had come from Devon at that point. He, you know, want to have a bit of a try. Well, yeah, fine. First time he got the ball, he scored. <laughs> and we just went, what? How did, where did that come from? This guy is quick. <laughs> You're in. With a step. And it turns out Devon is about a four to five hour drive from Warrington. Wow. And that puts he you would, to shame, he would leave, I guess he would leave Devon at about three in the afternoon. No, it must have been even earlier than that. Maybe he'd leave at midday, get up to Warrington about four or five, we'd train at six, and then he'd drive home again and get home at two in the morning. Wow. And he, the first game he played was against Wakefield, and he scored all the 26 points. <laughs> because no one knew what was coming. After a while, people got to look out for him, and they would, you know, put one of their faster players on him. Yeah. But early doors, that first game against Wakefield, every time he got the ball, he was through. It was just remarkable. Mm. And another teammate of yours is a guy called Dan. Can you tell us what he went through to remain part of the squad through that 2018 season? Well, yeah, so Dan lost his leg above the knee in a cycling accident. He was hit by a truck about four or five years ago. Mm. Had to have his leg amputated above the knee. Didn't play rugby league after that. Didn't go anywhere near it. Came down to our first ever open trial, and (laughs) it was meant to be tagged. And the first time I went up to tag him, he, he dropped the shoulder into me. And I was like, all right, it's going to be like that, is it? <laughs> and then the next time I ran at him, he went in with both shoulders. And we're like, okay, all right, this is a tag for you and I. And afterwards, I said, how did that feel? And he went, mate, I haven't been hit like that on a rugby field for ages. That felt fantastic. <laughs> so the first ever game against Lee, he did himself so much damage to the stump that he had to have it re-amputated. Mm. So we had to go back into surgery and they had to go another 10 centimetres up the femur and they had to amputate again mm. and then reattach the hamstring and reattach the ligament. And he had it done as soon as possible so that he could recover as soon as possible so he could make it to Australia. And in all honesty, he should not have come to Australia. He was in no physical shape to play rugby league. But mentally, it was great for him to make the trip. And he did it and he played for five minutes. Yeah. And I mean, his, his comeback and rehabilitation was ridiculous. To have already had an amputation, have another amputation and still do it so that you can play rugby league. Yeah. It's incredible. So when you watch this documentary, and I watch it not, I watched it not knowing half of the stories of the guys because, mm. you know, the interviewers would go off and talk to them and film it and that ended up in the final product. Yeah. When you watch it back, it's not a, and it's not inspiration porn. It's not sympathy. <laughs> it's, it's not, oh my God, you poor thing. It's like, oh my God, you, you know, for Tony, you drive five hours to yeah. come up and play. Yeah. The hilarious thing about Tony is that when we played at ANZ Stadium, Tony plays on the right wing and I play on the left wing. Mm. And when we were at ANZ, Joey Johns played for our team as one of the able-bodied players because he played for Warrington back in the day. Yeah. Joey said, right, Tony, go over to Hillsy's wing. We'll put him in in the corner. Yeah. And Tony went, I can't because I don't have a left hand. I can only catch if it comes to me from my oh, left. Yeah, of course. That's why I play on the right wing. 
And he kind of went, oh, no. Right, Hilton, you go out for Tony's win. We'll put him in instead. (laughs) Those are the things you've got to deal with when you play disability rugby league Mm. as well. In that Tony can't catch with his left hand, so he has to play on the right wing. Dan can't step off his right foot because he doesn't have a right foot. So whoever's Mm. defending on his right shoulder has to move in a little bit closer to him because Mm. they know he can't cover that. And, And then... Even to the point where if you're playing against someone who's about to tackle you and he doesn't have a left arm, then you you step him on that side because you know he doesn't have an arm. Yeah. It, feels, it feels brutal, but that's what they're going to do to me, so I've got to do it to them. <laughs> that's really interesting. Now, you mentioned your trip to Sydney. So after a few titanic battles against the likes of Wakefield and Leeds, all of a sudden you're on a plane to Sydney to take on your boyhood team, yep. the South Sydney Rabbitohs. How did that feel for you and also for the team? Because there's a great quote from the film where I think someone says the lads were initially buzzing about being taken on a coach to Wakefield a few weeks later there on Sydney Harbour. Well, it was amazing to watch the documentary back for me. Look, that very first trip I made up to Warrington, I said to their disabilities manager, let's form a team and take them to Australia. I'd already decided what was going to happen. Mm. But in my head, my thinking was, we'll go out to Australia, we'll have an exhibition match against the Rabbitohs, and I'll play for the Rabbitohs, and then I'll get to live out my boyhood dream. Yeah. But as it got closer to the day, I had dinner with Russell Crowe in London, with a few other people, and then by the end of the night, he and I were just talking rugby league, we were mm. talking about the CDRL. And I said, oh, I don't know who to play for. I said, because... My heart's with the Rabbitohs because that's who I grew up supporting, but mm. my mates are in the Warrington team and they're the people that I've worked and trained with. And Russell got really serious and he went, mate, you've got to earn the jersey. Yeah. He said, you can't just pull on the red and green and you're suddenly a Rabbitoh. You've got to <laughs> train with it. You've got to work with it. You've got to sweat with it. I said, I know this is exactly my point. <laughs> and so a month later, he texted me out of the blue and said, I've got an answer. How about I sponsor your jersey so that you can still wear the rabbit onto the ANZ stadium mm. on your chest? Which was such a lovely gesture. So yeah. we all had the rabbit on our chest as well as the wolves on the other side. Oh, lovely. The weirdest moment for me, though, so we walked out onto ANZ and, you know, they played Hungry Like the Wolf as our walk-on music, which was kind of funny. <laughs> got down the other end, got onto my wing, and then the Rabbitohs team came out. And I, at no point, did I think they were going to play Glory Glory to South Sydney. Yeah. But I'm standing on ANZ Stadium and I hear the... And I was like, oh man, oh man, this is it. this song's in my DNA, I've got to block it out. <laughs> I literally walked right down to the corner and blocked, I have no memory of the rest of that song playing because I had to block it out of my head. <laughs> what a wild so it experience. Was weird. It was very weird playing against the Rabbitohs. Yeah. Well, Adam, what next for PDRL? Obviously, no play in the short term, but once it's back up and running, what do you want to see for it and what don't you want to see for it? Well... My immediate plans were this, so I'm going to be spending a bit more time in Australia this year. I mean, I was anyway, because my wife and kids moved back to Melbourne. My kids wanted to be at their Melbourne school, so mm-hmm. I was going to spend half the year here and half the year in London. So I've registered with the NRL as a PDRL player, right? and I'm listed on the Rabbitohs team sheet for this year. Oh. So if the PDRL starts up again in Sydney, I'll be up there in a flash and I'll be playing for the Rabbitohs. Oh. and I will be the happiest bunny I've ever been. <laughs> Meanwhile, when I'm back in the UK, I'm still going to play for the Wolves. I'm going to try and do a little bit of both if I can. That's, as you say, if there's a season at all this year. Yeah. In the long term, there's talk of a TDRL World Cup in 2021. Oh, fabulous. If that goes ahead, I'm going to put my hat in the ring to at least be open for selection for Australia. Yeah. If I'm, you know, if I'm fit enough and if I'm good enough, I'd love to go. Man, if I could represent Australia, that'd be amazing. Yeah. 
but also in the long term. What's interesting here is the game's been going for longer here, but it's not as closely affiliated with the NRL, whereas in the UK, it's only been there a couple of years, but the RFL have really taken the lead with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what I'd love to see happen here is that the, the NRL get a bit more involved and the league itself get a bit more promotion and a bit more support from the NRL and kind of be a bit more officially recognised in Australia. Right. And then what I'm hoping happens in the UK is that there ends up being a, a World Cup in 2021 and that the league keeps going and developing. Yeah. And between the two countries, what we need to do is just fine-tune the rules because when you're talking about disability sports, it's a pretty massive grey area yeah. of what's disabled, what's not a disability, what's a level playing field and how do we get the rules to match up across the country. So I'm hoping that, basically for me, I just want PDRL to become more established yep. and more officially recognised within both the NRL and International Rugby League. Well, fingers crossed. It's such a, a great and inclusive part of the game, so hopefully it just grows from strength to strength. Now, Adam, another important event you were part of in 2020 was the official launch of the Rugby League World Cup 2021, which will be held in the UK in late 2021, encompasses wheelchair, women's and men's tournaments. It was held at Buckingham Palace, with the then Prince Harry front and centre. What was that like? Because to me, you know, it seems like a slightly incongruous scene, a bunch of rugby league characters from, you know, the Rebel Code, the anti-establishment game, chowing down on the Royal Hors d'oeuvres. What was that experience like? (laughs) Well, it turns out Prince Harry is an ambassador, is the royal patron of rugby league in the UK. And again, the RFL, because of my association with it and through my association with the World Cup itself, so it looks like I'm going to be an, one of the ambassadors for the World Cup in 2021. Oh, fabulous. And yeah, so they invited me along. We were still talking about it, but they invited me along, uh, you know, under that premise to be there. I mean, Buckingham Palace is ridiculous. And the people I was chatting to, you know, there was Martin Meredith from the NRL, who I had a great old chat to about the inclusivity of it. And then later I kind of went home and Googled him and went, oh man, I used to watch him as a kid. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, representatives of the New Zealand Rugby League, all in these esteemed halls of Buckingham Palace, which was kind of hilarious. Yeah. You know, I mean, a rugby league player in, in a fantasy suit is always an unusual look anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think what I really liked about that day is, as you say, how inclusive it all was. It wasn't just Prince Harry going, okay, here's the draw for the men's competition, and then someone else can do the draw for the other league. Mm. As you say, it was wheelchair and women's and men's, and they were all treated equally. None was given more precedence than any other. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've learned about rugby league in the UK, how progressive it was. The first ever black person to captain or coach an English national team was in rugby league. Clive um, Sullivan, first, of course. Clive Sullivan, indeed. Mm. The first Muslim to represent England, I think, in any sport was rugby league. Mm-hmm. Ikram Butt, yeah. Yeah. It is a very progressive sport in England, and I don't think we see it as such here in Australia. Often the, the main sport in town doesn't need to engage the community. And look, I know I know clubs have their foundations, and there's a Rabbitohs fan. I know they have South Cares, and I know they do a lot of community support as well, but... Mm. There is something about rugby league in England, like I said, that is a family sport. There's no aggression when you go to the game. Like you go to a football game, like a soccer game in England, and you've got to wear the right scarf and you've got to stand up the right end and you've got to, on the train on the way home, get on the right carriage, otherwise there's going to be a fight. Rugby league there is a bit more like rugby league here. You can take your kids along to it. But it's, it's a 
genuine family community sport over there and it's really progressive and I think that day at Buckingham Palace we were talking now I've lost the name of the player but it's going to come to me in a second Rob Burrow oh yeah of course the Leeds halfback was it auto motor neurone disease yes so there had been a charity game played for Rob Burrow maybe a couple of weeks beforehand mm. and it really kind of showed the community side of rugby league and Prince Harry brought that up in conversation with a few people and one of the guys that I was standing with had played with Rob Burrow and kind of joined in the conversation right. and I thought that was really important that, that Prince Harry wasn't just there fulfilling royal obligations yeah. he knew about the, the inclusive nature of rugby league and, and what it does and how it supports its own so he was across what rugby league as a sport does in the UK and I thought that was really impressive yeah well, that's one of the reasons why we started the pod, you know, in Australia. The daily din rugby league doesn't seem a very progressive sport. But yeah, when you dig a little deeper, it has a really proud history of progressiveness and inclusion. And that's one of the reasons why we started the podcast. But anyway, there's a moment from the event when the then Prince Harry greets you. You get talking a little and you start riffing on how progressive rugby league is. I'll see if I can find the audio for our listeners. <laughs> I have to admit, when I first heard a snippet of that conversation, I heard the words progressive and rugby league, and honestly, there was a split second there where I thought you were recommending our humble podcast. Now, my girlfriend quickly, <laughs> quickly told me to snap out of it, you idiot. But, uh, you know, there was a, a second there where I was in a, an alternative universe there. I also note that while Harry has quit the royal family, he remains the patron of UK Rugby League, as far as I understand. Now, we always knew Harry as a rugby union guy, but for him to stick solid with rugby league, I wonder if rugby league and what it stands for has won him over. I'm speculating, of course, but let's go with that. He, I think you're right. I think he's probably originally a union lad. I know he was at the, the Challenge Cup last year at mm-hmm. Wembley, and I think he said, when we were at Buckingham Palace, I think he said that was his first game of rugby league. Right, OK. But I think he does like what it stands for. Like I said, that community aspect of, of rugby league in the UK. Mm. And it, kind of, it it is a fascinating thing. The more I delve into it over there, you know, when you think of why rugby league was invented in England, it was invented so the people up north, the working class people who couldn't afford to play it as an amateur sport, mm like rugby union, like the posh boys from down south, you know, your working class miners and what have you, they needed to be paid for it. They needed to feed their family. And and a lot of these blokes were, you know, were teachers during the day or factory workers or the like, and they would play rugby league on the weekend, but then go to work during the week, which I know, look, eventually that happened all around the world. But Mm. the way rugby league was invented in England, it was invented so that communities could stay together, so that people could afford to feed their families mm. and if they were injured they got sick pay and it was a progressive sport it, it was at the time 1895 when it was invented mm. it was a sport that was thinking ahead of the curve and it was doing it to try and bolster local communities and i think it it still does that in england i'm not and i'm not sure that we get the sense of that in australia maybe because oh, i don't know maybe because each town doesn't have its own team you know sydney has a whole bunch of teams yeah yeah so you mean whereas in england there's the Warrington team and the Witness team and the whatever else, mm. where there is just that lovely sense of community and family that comes from rugby league in England that I'm really proud to be associated with. Yeah, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It did start as a, a workers' rights issue, and we actually, on the show last week, <clears> had <throat> Professor Tony Collins, who took us through uh, the beginnings of rugby league in the UK and how it sort of spread its tentacles down south as well. So, Adam, yeah. 
what next for you? When I talk to authors or when I read about musicians or artists, they're always talking about their current project, but they're thinking and looking ahead to their next project. So aside from your TV work, which I imagine takes up enough of your time already, do you have any other projects planned, films, rugby league podcasts or otherwise? Well, look, let's take coronavirus out of the picture because that's kind of thrown everyone's plans off kilter a little bit. I do have a new stand-up comedy show that I will tour as soon as we're allowed to have, you know, more than 100 people back in a venue again. <laughs> Lovely. There, there is talk of Take His Legs too. the ah. follow-up documentary about the PDRL World Cup in 2021, and if that comes about, it'll follow both the formation of the England team and me at least trying out for the Australian team. Oh, fabulous. But further to that, I've talked to Channel 4 about making a series of documentaries just about sports and social change, about the amount of sports clubs around the world that do their bit to make a difference in society, whether it be an LGBT football team in Brazil Mm -hmm. or, you know, a refugee cricket team in Beirut. This whole thing that I've done with the Wolves has kind of opened my eyes to the amount that sport is more than just sport it's about mental health and it's about social change and it's about community support and when it comes down to a grassroots level and i think it's easy to forget that and as you say it's what you said about the the daily din of rugby league and it's what joey john said he was interviewed on channel nine after he played with us at anz and he Mm. said it's really easy to get caught up in the bs of professional sport Mm. but he said playing with these guys made me remember why i love rugby league and When you see sport at a grassroots level and what it can do for people's state of mind, for community spirit, for mateship, for all of that kind of stuff, yeah, sport's really, you know, it's really important. And that's the kind of documentaries that I'd love to make. I'd love to delve a bit more into the social change that sport can bring about. So that was my next project. It involves travelling the world, which won't be happening for quite some time. Uh, And it involves TV shows having money to commission new projects, which might not happen (laughs) for quite some time. But at the moment, the main thing I'm doing while in lockdown, and the the, the thing I'm focusing on is getting myself fit enough to get back into rugby league again. I've been doing sprint training, our team. And this is, again, an example of the kind of mental health aspects of the sport. The first Tuesday night that we couldn't train because of lockdown, Mm. our coach on the WhatsApp group, asked three questions. He said, right, lads, quick quiz. Favourite player, least favourite player, and the team you support apart from the one you play for. Yeah. And we all sent in an answer. And then the next thing he did was send through a picture of the alphabet, and next to every letter was an exercise. So A was 15 <laughs> press-ups, B was 20 crunches, C was 50 star jumps, all the way down to Z. Mm. And he said, now your task for the next week is to spell out all of those answers that you gave me. <laughs> And there were a couple of guys upset that they had sent through Louis McCarthy Scarsbrook as their least favourite <laughs> player. <laughs> I was worried about the South Sydney Rabbitohs being my favourite yeah, team. Of course. But so these little exercises we did every day and we challenged each other. And now I'm going on runs and I'm doing, I did some sprint training yesterday because I've set myself the task of playing for the Rabbitohs again come what may. So that's my, that's my big thing yeah. is some point either this year or next year i will play pdrl for the rabbit well it all sounds exciting from the film to you playing for the rabbit so keep us posted adam we're out of time unfortunately but i want to take this opportunity to thank you for taking the time to be part of our little podcast you know i need to confess before i let you go i used to be one of those guys that when someone at work said did you watch spicks and specs last night i literally was one of those guys who was like i'm more of a rock whiz guy to be honest 
And I'd literally say, <laughs> I'd literally say it in that tone, basically trying to be cool or something. I'm cringing just thinking about it, but I was that guy. And Rockwiz is a great show, of course. Anyway, once I caught wind of your foray into PDRL a couple of years ago, it opened me up to Spicks and Specs and your other work. And of course, it goes without saying it's top notch. And I, I think I've watched most of Spicks and Specs back catalog now, and my girlfriend and I just love it. So I tell you this story as a catharsis. B, an apology, C, as a thank you, and D, as an, another illustration of the power of rugby league. So anyway, <laughs> I've taken enough of your time, Adam. Congratulations once again on Takey's Legs. It's a lot of fun. And while I've avoided using the word so far, as I know it, it makes some people cringe. It is, well, bloody inspiring and a tonic for our time. So Adam Hills, kudos, and thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. It's been a long time for me that I haven't had to apologise for banging on about rugby league because <laughs> I know that's actually what you wanted me to do. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Adam. Progressive Rugby League. So there you go. Adam Hills, lovely guy. Before we go, just wanted to say a big thanks for all the great feedback we've received in our most recent book club episode, Rugby League, A People's History by Tony Collins. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to Tony, and I know you'll thoroughly enjoy the book when it comes out over the northern summer. Feel free to catch up with that or our other previous book club episodes on your player of choice. All right, let's call it a day and or night. It's been a pleasure once again to have your company. Stay warm physically, stay cool mentally, and until we next cross paths, Rugby League homie, and see ya. <laughs>